Well, gentlemen, good evening. It is uh, my joy and my distinct honor to be standing here with you tonight in the stead of our faithful pastor. And uh, we are bringing to close an, an amazing series from Dr. Clausen, who is so faithful to bring such a powerful message to us every week. Are we not blessed? Amen? And I expect a lively group tonight. I expect there to be some Baptists here, so let's get some amens. Yes, to our pastor, Brad. Thank you, Brad. We are wrapping up the series on the Christian mind, and I'm sure all of you will agree that this has been very insightful, deep. It's been a challenging message, but a, a topic and message that is oh so necessary for the Christian life. And tonight... As we bring this series to a close, we're going to do so with a very important topic. The topic is admonition, or officially, as you'll see in your handout, admonishing one another. Now, throughout this season, we have seen many different ways that the Christian mind must be informed, directed, disciplined. And if a man of God, like you and myself, is truly going to live out his God-ordained role, faithfully, he must be informed. He must be informed of the expectations in Scripture. He must be informed of the instructions, the how-tos. He must be informed of the provisions, primarily what the Lord provides. And he must be informed of the opposition, the world we live in. And in addition to that, he must be informed of his error. And the informing of his error is where admonition comes into play. And this is where we will be spending our time tonight. We have a lot to cover, so we're going to move quickly. In the 1930s, the Hudson Car Company in Detroit, Michigan, began a car revolution. You see, over the last 30 years, from 1900 to 1930, the automobile industry had exploded significantly following in Henry Ford's vision that everyone would be able to have their very own automobile. And by 1930, over 26 million cars existed. And while the number of people owning cars increased rapidly, the understanding of and the ability to work on and maintain these automobiles was still relatively low for the average Joe. And in fact, drivers' training courses were not even mandated until the 1930s. So even the skill of driving was behind the time. Now, naturally, an abundance of mechanical issues existed. But with the foresight to try and get ahead of these issues, the Hudson Car Company invented what we know as the check engine light. That oh-so-familiar little engine that lights up either red or orange on your car. Now, at the time, funny enough, this light was actually called the idiot light. Now, the idiot light was designed to bring attention to something that could potentially cause a problem in their car. These lights were primarily meant to be a warning. Now, usually they were connected to the odometer, and they were set to light up after a certain amount of miles went by signaling, hey, it's time to get some maintenance on your car. It was a warning to get ahead of issues that could, if waited too long, create larger issues, things like not checking your oil, 
You know, it happens when you run out of oil, your engine seizes. Or checking your electrical connections or your tire pressure, simple things like that. And this very simple warning ultimately prevented millions of people needing to spend money and time dealing with these issues. It's a very simple warning. Now, there's a a few possible reasons as to why they called it the idiot light. Here they are. The first one is, you idiot, look what you've done. Don't be an idiot and get out of the car right now. There's a problem. Or if you have no clue as to how to read any of the gauges in your car, or if you're not good at scheduling things on your calendar, such as maintenance, then here's this bright red light that's going to go on, and it's going to remind you to get some help. You idiot. Now, we know by the financial stresses of owning a car, especially expensive cars, that any warning that could lower our costs of repairs is a good and welcomed warning. Admonition, similarly, is a warning. Now, we also know that inherently in our prideful sinfulness that we resist warnings. We resist authority. We resist correction. And a very well-known example of this that we've heard from this pulpit is this. In 1984, an Avionica Airlines plane crashed in Spain. Investigators in the studying the accident and studying the wreckage made an eerie find. The black box, you know, the recorder from the cockpit was recovered. And it revealed that several minutes before the impact, a loud computerized voice from the plane's automatic warning system told the crew repeatedly in English, pull up, pull up, pull up. Well, the pilot, evidently thinking that the system was malfunctioning, most likely due to his perceived perception of the computer's error, yelled at the computer, shut up, gringo, and switched off the system. Minutes later, that plane crashed into the side of a mountain. 181 people died. The outcomes of some warnings have a higher price tag than others. Gentlemen, warnings are good. Admonition, good. Now, often we quiver at being corrected, We quiver at being wrong, right? That's our pride. And often we quiver at the idea of confronting people. It's uncomfortable, so we avoid it. Yet the scripture calls us both to admonish and to be admonished. Let's take it serious. Tonight we're going to look at a deeper understanding of this concept. So what is biblical admonishment? One easy way to understand biblical admonishment is to understand it with its counterpart, teaching. Teaching and admonishment are very close friends. What they have in common is that they both relay information. When teaching, we discuss facts. It's a positive. It's neutral. It's general. But when we admonish, we discuss facts, but with a different intention. The intention of pointing out error or possible error. It's the negative. Now, These two can function together perfectly, and they do all the time. I can be explaining something very neutrally to somebody and then shift instantly into the direction of acknowledging this person's error, error in their thinking, error in their understanding, 
and they can be done individually. I can approach you with the intention to teach you or simply relay information, or I can approach you with the sole intention of showing you that there is something wrong in your life. Officially, we could say this. Admonition is to give a warning or to give a notice to, especially beforehand, the potential of danger or evil by reasoning with the person. Now, there are two words in the Bible that you might see through your studies translated admonishment, nutheteo and perineo. Nutheteo will be our focus for tonight, but perineo from para equals to point, to the point of, and aneo, to the praise, simply means this. Here's the distinction between those. It's a strong advice. It's to indicate strongly to somebody what he or he should or should not do. It's basically giving an urgent direction. And we see this twice in Scripture, both in the book of Acts. I'll read them to you quickly, and then we can put them to side and focus on our word. Acts 27.9 says this, When considerable time had passed and the voyage was now dangerous, since even the fast was already over, Paul started admonishing them. Paraeneo. Strong direction. 27 verse 22 says this. And yet now I urge you or I exalt you, Paraneo, to keep up your courage. For there will be no loss of life among you but only the ship. Strong direction. Admonishing you strongly, direction. Now, while similar to Nutheto, this warning is strong but it's general. It's a warning or an advisement and direction, but it doesn't necessarily have anything to do with moral issues. Nutheteo, on the other hand, our word we'll be focusing on tonight, comes from the word nous, which is mine. We've already seen this through our studies with Dr. Clausen. And tithamai, place. It literally means to place in the mind, to take something and place it in the mind. But here's the thrust. The stress is being on influencing not only the intellect, but also the will, the emotions, and disposition. This is the key. This is what separates it. Right? We're not simply talking about giving information with admonition. Even if we're doing so urgently, that's not the point of admonition. We are doing so with, an, with a moral imperative with an, et- an effort to lead towards spiritual conviction. Paul in 2 Corinthians 7, 9 through 10 says this, As it is, I rejoice not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief, so that you suffered no loss through us. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. And we have this example of Peter preaching at Pentecost, and he says this to the Jews, and notice their response. This is in Acts 2, verses 35 through 38. He says, Therefore, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Admonition. Now, when they heard this, they were pierced to the heart 
and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what are we to do? His admonition brought knowledge that brought on conviction. Brother, what am I to do? Show me the way. I feel the conviction. I see the wrong. Guide me. Peter admonishes. He places truth into the mind, and it brings about the conviction, and it brings about change. Now, with that in mind, helpful synonyms to admonishment are these. Things to start thinking about how admonishment looks in real life. Warnings. Cautioning. Reproving. Exhorting. Imparting understanding. To set right. To adjust. To align. To indicate duties. To indicate obligations. To express disapproval of, especially in a gentle, earnest, or considerate manner. To give a friendly, earnest advice or encouragement. To reprove firmly, but not harshly. To advise to do something or against doing something. But the stress is on influencing not merely the intellect, but the will and the disposition. Okay? The idea is that is not that of a punishment. Oftentimes we think of admonition and we think, oh, I'm being punished. I'm being reprimanded. No. It's a moral appeal out of care. It's a moral appeal out of care. When you heard Peter's word preaching what they had done to the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ that they put to death, he's doing that out of care. He wants them to repent. He's not punishing. Now, this concept of admonition has led to what's called newthetic counseling. Newthetic counseling, which is derived from our word, nutheteo, and contains the idea of setting in the mind. Newthetic counseling was an effort to give individual attention to a person, officially, where specific Bible correction, Bible instruction, along with love and the compassion of Christ, was the route in the church to bring about God-honoring change in one's life. The term nuthetic counseling was first seen in the 1970 book, Competent to Counsel, by Dr. J. Adams. Now, J. Adams is known as the father of the biblical counseling movement, and his writings, which started in the 1960s, encouraged and gave pastors a new method of thinking as about how to bring about change in their congregation, people coming for help. He organized this in a very unique way. And this eventually grew and grew and grew to what we have today, which is multiple different training institutes, universities, seminaries that have programs devoted to this concept of bringing admonition to the people who need it. And why? Because admonition is extremely important and it's extremely practical. Now, the foundation of this synthetic counseling is admonishment. And Jay Adams very easily broke it into three words that's, that are helpful. Concern, confrontation, and change. Concern comes from the heart of the person bringing it. It's concern. It's not angry. It's not mad. It's concerned. And then it brings confrontation. That's the admonishment. I am confronting you out of my concern. 
And the ultimate goal is a change, right? A change in will and a change in disposition. That's the goal of admonition. Jadam says this. He says, God's word changes people, changes their thinking, changes their decisions, and changes their behavior. Change is an important matter to neuthetic counselors. The scriptures everywhere anticipate change. The Holy Spirit is the spirit of change. His activity is everywhere represented as the dynamic and power behind the personality changes in God's people. Change is important. And admonition is the road that helps bring change. Now, needing change mainly has to do with the issue of sin, right? A factor that is most often excluded in modern psychology models. So one final distinction I want to make before we sort of develop a a biblical theology of admonition is this, a distinction between worldly admonition and biblical admonition. Admonition that comes from a biblical perspective always denies the approach of mainstream psychology and humanistic psychiatry. Why? Because while they might affirm that they are also teaching and they are also admonishing with an effort to help, the great distinction is that of the purposeful absence of and the purposeful removal of God. How do you help someone without God? God is the source of truth. If you are helping somebody with a set of instructions that are void of God, you are helping somebody with a set of instructions void of truth. Maybe not all truth, but some truth doesn't help most people. We need the word of God. We need the creator of the universe to help. Secular psychology purposefully attempts to fix problems without God. But true biblical Admonition is designed to bring a person closer to God. Keep that in mind as part of the motivation. True admonition. If you find yourself in a position of admonition, after we go through all of this, understand that your job, the job of admonition, is to bring a person closer to God. Amen? Now let's break down the biblical understanding of admonition. Build a sort of a biblical theology of what the Bible teaches about admonition. And we're going to start with its purpose. We're going to start with its purpose. And we'll be looking at Colossians chapter 1, verse 28. It says, We proclaim him, admonishing every person and teaching every person with all wisdom, so that we may present every person complete in Christ. Our first stop in building a biblical theology of admonishment starts with understanding its purpose. Now, the biblical purpose sets the foundation to make it much easier to put the other building blocks on top, creating a nice, clean picture for us. And as with all instruction in Scripture, there is always a specific purpose. Admonishment is a tool in the hands of the Lord, and he has a mission. And the Apostle Paul tells us of this intention in verse 28 of Colossians 1. And what does he say? He says, the reason that Verse 28, we proclaim him. The reason that we admonish every person, the reason that we teach every person, the reason that we do that with all wisdom is so that we may present every person complete in Christ. The motivation behind admonishing 
within the church or outside the church as believers is to make every person complete in Christ. Complete here is the Greek word teleos. It's all often translated perfect. Now, we will never be perfect. Right? We are sinners. But what it truly means is an end or a purpose to, an aim, a goal. It's a, it's a means of completion or mature, fully developed, fully grown, brought to its end, finished, wanting nothing necessary to completion is in good working order. In this verse, it's talking about Christian maturity. Christian maturity. Being complete in Christ is Christian maturity. And this shouldn't be a topic that is uncommon to us. Our entire lives should be devoted to Christian maturity. Everything we do in terms of devotions, prayer, coming here, meeting with the men, having relationships, is in an attempt to mature in our Christian life. 1 Corinthians 14.20 says this, Brothers, do not be children in your thinking. Be infants in evil, but in your thinking be mature. Ephesians 4.13 says, Until we attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. We have learned through our studies so far in this series that Christian maturity is directly attached to the overarching concept of the Christian mind. Now, it's the mind, it's in the mind that we collect information. We exercise contemplation. And ultimately, we acknowledge truth. Now, we know that our truth needs to be informed. Right? Unlike the world today where there is no absolute truth. And the individual looks inward at their own opinions and at their own emotions, and they ultimately become the sole determiner of what truth is. Men, if you have not settled it in your heart right now, that you are not dictated by your feelings, do it now. We are dictated by one thing and one thing alone, and that is Jesus Christ, not our feelings not our emotions, not our own opinions, Jesus Christ. Our feelings do not determine how we think. Our feelings do not determine how we respond to others. Our feelings do not determine how we act. We choose Christ despite our feelings. That's self-discipline. I don't feel like it, but I must honor Christ. Yes? When our feelings oppose what is clear in Scripture, we have one job to do. We bulldoze that over. We stand on top of it. We plant the victory flag of Jesus Christ, knowing that all sinful feelings come from our sinful flesh. But it takes strength to get to that place. That's a great picture, isn't it? The men of old, the Puritans, the reformers, men who were not afraid to stand in the face of opposition and proclaim what they believe and deny what is false. That's strength. That's powerful. That should be something that we all want in our lives. But it takes maturity. And admonition is designed to help produce this. 
So let us pursue this aggressively and let us pursue this reverently, this idea of admonition. Now, in contrast to the world, the man of God readily and eagerly, eagerly looks outward for truth. He looks towards the God who is the author and the authority of who gets to decide what truth is. And this is done by what? Collecting knowledge, learning. And it is done in those two primary ways we've already looked at, teaching and admonishing. Proper biblical understanding that comes from teaching and proper biblical understanding that comes from admonishing matures the man as his mind is renewed and as his mind is trained. This, of course, then seeps into another way in which the man is matured. How is that? James chapter 1. Count it all joy, brothers, when you meet various trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect, complete, lacking in nothing. What's that? Maturity. Christian maturity. And we know that the Lord sovereignly guides us through trials of various kinds in order to test our faith. And now, and how we perform through these trials will be directly connected to your understanding. Directly to connected to the teaching that you have absorbed over the course of this season, over the course of your life, and directly connected to the admonishment that we have and that we have received. Now, life is hard. We know that. And the Lord is not afraid to bring trials into your life. Settle that. He is not. The Lord is not afraid to bring us to our knees. The Lord is not afraid to make us sweat because he knows what it does. So if we can know what it does, we can get on board with what the Lord is doing, we can get moving, start to grow in our strength. He's eager to do this. So let us start to see the value in the way that the Lord matures us because we want that maturity, we want that strength. Let us see the value in the way that the Lord informs us for maturity. You see where I'm getting at, admonition. I'm building a picture of the value of admonition. Teaching we know. We, we are at one of the greatest churches getting fed like you wouldn't believe all week long. Teaching we know the importance of. The Bible says admonition is important too. Well, there's another reason I want to point to as to why the purpose of admonishment is so important to establish. Why the purpose that Paul is giving us here is so important. John 15, 8 says this. By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. The reason why admonishment is so important is because it leads to maturity. And maturity is synonymous with bearing fruit. The result, God's glory. Men, admonishment is so important because it produces the glory of God in your life. And I admonish you right now, if bringing God glory with your life is not top priority, number one, you are living for something other than God. God's glory cannot be second place in your life. Think about that. I want to glorify God with my life. And if admonishment is a way that it's produced, bring it on. Admonish me. I don't care. Correct me. 
Redirect me, expose me, stop me. I do not care. You want to know why? Because I'm a sinner. And I know that. Don't you? Isn't that obvious to you as you struggle as a man to fight this? This means we need help. It means we need the church. It means we need the brothers. It means we need teaching. All of these things we know. But let's add to the list. We know we need admonishment. How dare we be resistant when somebody points out something? We're so fragile. Like it's a surprise. How dare we shrink away at the thought of correction? We're so prideful. We should be thanking them. Thank you, brother, for pointing out the thing in my life that I wasn't able to see that is holding me back even a little bit from bringing glory to God. Because I want that glory for God. I want it. Because he deserves it. Do you know who your God is? If you do, you understand he deserves all the glory with every ounce of your being. If somebody gives you a present for your birthday, what do you do? Maybe give them a little card. Thanks, brother. Appreciate you. Matt, there you go. Maybe I'll give you a gift card. I don't know. The gift designates the thank you. Men, you have been given the greatest gift in all of existence through Jesus Christ. There is nothing of more value than salvation in Jesus Christ. Nothing. It is the top. Nothing goes further in value. What does that deserve? What thank you does that deserve? It deserves your life. It deserves your life. The, the greatest thing that you can give is what it deserves. Your life. Your devotion. The way and the amount that you give to the Lord is a reflection of your gratitude and how you perceive the value of what Jesus Christ did for you. We should be thanking people for this admonishment. Paul also mentions admonishment in Colossians 3.16 when he says, admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Now, this is a picture of teaching. It's a picture of admonishment, singing psalms and hymns with thanksgiving, and it's a part of the larger section of Colossians 3, where Paul is doing what? He's describing new life in Christ. Okay, pretty significant. We see him celebrating this new life, and he says things like this in Colossians 3, 2 through 4. He says, set your mind on the things that are above, not on things that are on earth, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. The purpose of admonishment here is Christian maturity. And through the joy of our new life, we should be eager and excited to bring him glory with everything. Admonishment is one of those ways. I'm going to say that a million times. So let us start to see the infinite value and be eager to give and receive. Now, with the purpose in mind, that's the foundation, let's begin to build upward. And let's move into find a little bit more clarity by looking at what admonition is not. 1 Corinthians 4.14 tells us, Paul says, I do not write these things to shame you. 
but to admonish you as my beloved children. Well, right off the bat, the Apostle Paul states, the purpose of admonishment is not to shame. It's not to shame. The goal of shaming is never needed to bring about change. Notice he calls them his beloved children. That's his affection for them. That's not their title. That's him showing his affection for them. The same way when the Lord refers to us as his beloved children, he is showing his affection for us. Now, Paul's admonishment is never, ever separated from his love for them. And that love is motivating them to help them through admonition. Now, there was a problem in, in, in Corinth, and Paul spent the last few chapters leading up to that verse bringing correction. And Paul wasn't holding back. He was correcting a division of loyalties, which produced quarrels. He was correcting an attraction to worldly wisdom, setting them straight. And he's even using sarcasm to drive home his point. Together, it's rebuke and correction. But his intention wasn't selfish. Sarcasm in our culture is hurtful. We know that. We've all been sarcastic. And it can be hurtful. It's meant to bring shame for the sake of some sort of sinful satisfaction. Let me be sarcastic against you. It's meant to be hurtful. We're never being sarcastic in hopes that it helps somebody. It's always got a selfish motive. But remember this. Paul is saying the word shame because he knows they will feel shame and they will feel guilt. But that's not his intention, that they simply feel bad or shamed. What kind of parent would only seek to make their kids feel bad for things they did wrong? Is that good parenting? No. That motive is selfish. That motive is to try to get them to stop because it's a bother. That motive is for comfort some sort of selfish satisfaction, even for emotional punishment. That's why we get angry, because in our heart, we're punishing. I don't like this situation, and I'm going to express my anger as punishment. No, shame is not needed in giving an admission. The shame comes from a clear lesson. Now, God says this, but you did this. And this is the result. Will it hurt? Yes. Guess what? We can learn this together. I don't need to shame you. I just need to be clear with you. Might there be pain? Might there be guilt? Might there be shame? Yes, of course. But that's caused by the Holy Spirit, not by me. I'll leave that up to him. I'm going to be clear. I'm going to have proper biblical intentions. Paul shows us his intention. He says this. Still in Acts, looking at chapter 4, verse 15, he says, For if you were to have countless tutors in Christ, yet you would not have many fathers. For in Jesus Christ I became your father through the gospel. Therefore, I exhort you, be imitators of me. For this reason, I have sent you Timothy, who is my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, and he will remind you of my ways, which were in Christ, just as I teach everywhere in every church. Now, Paul points to himself as superior to the many tutors that they had in Corinth. Now, he's not doing that to put them down. 
He's doing that to reestablish his authority as an apostle. Why? So that they would take his direction seriously, that they would take his admonition seriously, and we would too. Okay, fine. Paul, we do. We see it. What's your direction? It's not to shame. It's to admonish. What's your direction? He says this, verse 16, to be imitators of me. In verse 17, he says, to be reminded through Timothy of his ways, which are in Christ. His goal of admonition and our goal of admonition should always be to help someone walk closer to Jesus Christ. That's what Paul was doing. Paul's life was devoted to being a faithful follower of Jesus Christ. And while the things brought shame, that wasn't his goal, that wasn't his his intention. His intention was, this is serious, listen to my admonition and follow in my footsteps towards honoring Christ. Admonition is always designed to lead towards following in Christ's footsteps better. If your heart's intention in correcting someone is not out of love, like the Apostle Paul's here, like a father to a child, then it's not biblical admonition. Most likely sinful. Listen to John Calvin. John Calvin says this, For the person who admonishes in a friendly way takes special pains to see that the shame, to see that all the shame should remain a matter between himself and the person whom he warms, and so be disposed of. But the man who unbraids in a malicious way exposes sin of another, produces shame in him so as to make him the object of everybody's reproach. Shame is not a part of admonition. From your motivation, that's what the Lord does. Lord brings shame. Lord brings conviction. Let him do that job. Let our heart be pure to lead each other, to lead our men closer to walking in the image of Christ. Amen? Well, how's this done? Let's move on. How is this done? Let's get practical. How's admonition done? Now, in both of our instances where Paul speaks of admonition to the Colossians, he says this. He says in 128, in all wisdom. He says in 316, with all wisdom. Okay, simply put, Paul says, admonition must be done with wisdom. Not hastily, not out of control, out of uncontrolled emotion, not without direction, but with wisdom. But in chapter 3 of Colossians, Paul's, Paul gives us, more importantly, what is behind this wisdom. He says in 3.16, let the word of Christ dwell richly within you, with all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another. Right? Before any wisdom can be used in order to admonish, the person must let the word of Christ dwell richly. Now, the word of Christ here is simply a synonymous with the truth of him. This is the truth of Christ. The word of Jesus Christ is the word of the gospel. And we've established across this series that true wisdom and true knowledge and true understanding only comes from God and through his scriptures. Right? Proverbs 1.7 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Nobody who is unsaved fears the Lord in the way they're supposed to. There's no true, true fear, thus knowledge or understanding 
There is no knowledge or understanding outside the saving work of Jesus Christ. Only when one has graciously been saved are the words of Christ dwelling in him. First stop, you must be a true believer. Now, Paul adds another layer to that, saying that Christ must be dwelling richly. Dwell, in the Greek, is enoikio, from en, which is in, and enoikio, which is dwell. It means literally to dwell in, to take up residence, to make one's home or among one's home. Richly? Richly is wealth. It's abundance. It's riches. But it has a twofold meaning of both quantity and degree. It means abundantly applying and using this word and all of its teaching, but also using it consistently at all times in all circumstances. This is a picture of the truth of Christ and by default, the truth of scriptures dominating one's life. The truth of scripture, the truth of Christ at home in the Christian's life, settled, in place, solid, richly spilling over into every crevice of their life, dominating one's thinking, dominating one's opinions, dominating one's actions. But only a true believer in Jesus Christ can exercise this biblical wisdom. And we can understand that when the word is so richly in somebody's life, it influences everything necessary to have wisdom. And this word of Christ is the saving gospel and all its truths. What does that mean? It means to say that when somebody is teaching and somebody is admonishing in all wisdom, he's doing so with all the elements of salvation there. What does that mean? What does that look like practically? It always includes an understanding of God's holiness. It always includes an understanding of sin and depravity. It always includes an understanding of God's mercy and grace. An understanding of Christ's sacrificial atonement. And of course, it always includes the resulting gratitude. And that gratitude in the life of somebody who is living with these things is dead set on bringing glory to God in all things, including the situation at hand of admonishing somebody. Now, it's also done with all that Paul instructs a believer when he's putting on this new man in Colossians. If we continue on, Colossians 3, 12 through 15, it says, So as those who have been chosen by God, the believer... Holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another, forgiving each other. Whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. Beyond all of these things, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. And let the peace of Christ rule your heart to which you were called in one body and be thankful. These things don't go out the window when there is a situation needing some admonishment. These things do not go out the window when a brother is sinning or needing some help. Reshapes the whole idea of admonishment, doesn't it? A believer in this position 
He has the ability, as Paul says, to admonish in wisdom. That's what it takes. That's the heart for somebody to admonish in wisdom. The wisdom gives the ability to discern or identify an issue, to identify a deviancy in somebody's life, a brother that you know so well. Wisdom helps you to see these things. It has a sensitivity to spot when somebody's hurting. It has the sensitivity to see the distinctions because it's mature and because it's hyper-aware of what? It's hyper-aware of its own sinfulness. That's humility. A true believer is a humble, humble person in the sense that he understands his depravity. He understands his sin. And every time he goes to somebody who is sinning or needing help, that goes along with him. There is no room for hypocrisy. I humbly, out of love, come to you. And he has the wisdom to offer the solution and the plan to help this person. And he has the wisdom of how it looks to do this compassionately, knowing he's capable of making the exact same mistakes. And most likely, he already has. It comes with this compassion of humility. Now, Romans 15, 14 says this. And concerning you, my brothers and sisters, I myself also am convinced that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge and able to also admonish one another. Here again, we see admonishment being an ability of someone. Somebody who is full of goodness and filled with all knowledge mature in his faith, now has the ability to admonish. The Christian who is maturing and pursuing maturity has that wisdom, and we need it. So let's continue on with the practicality. Who does it? Who admonishes? The first group, church leadership. Church leadership admonishes. 1 Thessalonians 5.12 says this. We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and who are over you in the Lord and admonish you. Here Paul uses three participles to describe one group, leaders. These are the men who are, as the verse says, busy laboring among you. They're at work. And they have been given leadership because of their efforts because of their faithfulness, because of their energies, and as a result, their maturity. A man who is devoted to the church, a man who is faithful in his ministries, a man who shows up, will grow. Why? Because he's putting himself in a position to receive the maturity, to receive what is needed, which is the knowledge through teaching and through admonition. He's there, he's receiving it. He grows, and he's eager, and he's faithful, and he is working among them. And the church raises them to leadership. And as a result, he has wisdom. And he has the ability to admonish when necessary. Now this should make sense from the perspective of leadership. Because they have a unique vantage point of teaching, of studying, of purposely being in the lives of their men. Purposely keeping track, right? Group leaders, elders, deacons, these people who are in leadership positions have a heart that's desiring others. That's why they're there. And they have a unique vantage point to help with admonishment. And this naturally provides a sensitivity to people's needs. Now, leadership also has the responsibility to protect the church. So 
whether it's outright sin or it's subtle sin, it's dangerous for the health of the church. And leadership has a responsibility to address it. Notice he says this. He says, respect them. He says, respect these people. Why? Because they are doing important work. What do you mean? They're doing work towards helping your goal of maturing, which as a result helps your goal of bringing God glory with your life. Again, your top priority. You should walk onto this campus and to see the many men, pastors, and elders we have who are working hard to feed us, to train us, to teach us. We should see them with such value because they are giving us what we need. I want to glorify God, and I need men to give me what I need. Teaching. Admonishment. The next group is easy. Everyone. Who else admonishes? Everyone. Colossians 3.16 says, Let the word of the Lord, the word of Christ, dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another. One another. He's talking to the church at large. Romans 15.14 says, And concerning you, my brothers and sisters, I myself also am convinced that you yourselves, full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, and able to admonish one another. It's our responsibility as individuals to admonish each other. It is our responsibility as brothers to be in each other's lives so that we can help, so that we can be in the position to admonish. For each other's sake and for the church's sake and for the sake of God's glory. This shouldn't be something that we shy away from. But we should hold ourselves to the high standard that the Bible gives us, which in this case is being full of goodness with all knowledge and with the word of God dwelling richly in us. Men, that's devotion. Be recommitted to your devotion. Be fighting for your devotion. It's one of the most difficult things and one of the first things that goes when we get busy is our devotion to the Bible. We'll show up to church, right? It's part of our schedule. But do you read the word of God every day? No, no. No, we're not absorbing what we need to mature every day. If there's a whole book on wisdom, the book of Proverbs, and we haven't read the whole book, that tells us we're not functioning in our wisdom completely. We're missing stuff. Now, that should bother you because that bothers me. I want to be functioning with wisdom. Lord, I want to bring you glory with my life. I want to love the brethren. I want to serve you faithfully. How do I do that? I'm not going to assume that I know I need your word. I need your instruction. But that desire comes from your love for Christ and your desire to bring him glory in all things, men. We must have this desire. We must love Christ that much. We must. It's not an option. Settle it in your heart. You're walking out of here tonight saying, I will love Jesus Christ more than anything in my life, more than I ever have, and I will pursue doing it more and more and more my entire life because God is infinite, and he is infinitely holy, and he is infinitely worthy of all glory, which tells us we could be infinitely pursuing a greater level of love, admonition, respect, and honor for him. Let's get started. Let's get started, and let's do that as men. And let's not be afraid to admonish each other to help us do that. So that's who gives it. Leadership and everybody else. 
But who gets it? Who gets it? Let's practically continue on and let's move quick. Who gets it? Again, in Colossians 3.16, it says, each one. And Romans 15.14 says, one another. So it's safe to say that we all need it. And we're all going to get it. Now, this shouldn't be a surprise, right? When seen in view of its purpose, which is maturity, because we all have room for it. And we will always have room for it because none of us have arrived, have we? None of us will ever arrive until the day that we're in glory. Oh, I want to look forward to that day when we were out of these bodies and we were in glorified bodies and we're not struggling. We are loving, worshiping, and honoring the Lord in the way that he finally deserves, not in the way we're doing. What an amazing thought. What an amazing thought. I look forward to that day, and I hope you do too, men, because that's an expression of your love for Christ. I'm dissatisfied with what I give you down here, Lord, but one day in my glorified body, I will give you what you deserve. Do you think this way? You should. I do. We all have the ability to sin. We all have the ability to get things wrong, be confused, make mistakes. On top of the fact that we're still learning, like I said, which assumes the fact that there's more we could know and we need admonishment. There's another specific group that Paul points out, though. In 1 Thessalonians 5.14, he says this, We urge you, brethren, admonish the unruly. Encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with everyone. Paul, here, with an effort to protect the community, and with an effort to protect the church, points out a very specific instance where admonition is needed. He speaks of the unruly. Okay? The unruly was somebody who was out of order, not following directions, insubordinate. Sometimes this word is translated lazy. I'm sorry, translated idle. But it's not referring to laziness. It's referring to being passive, passive with their duties, passive with their involvement, or sort of indifferent to the order, indifferent to how things are going. They're there, but they're passive. We know people like this. We might be this person. Here's your warning. Here's your admonition. The Lord deserves better. The Lord deserves somebody who is fully engaged, not taking it passively, not thinking it's, he, he has the option to choose whether or not he serves. Christ deserves our service. We cannot be passive. Now, this is clearly not the only thing needing admonishment, but Paul points it out because of its extreme benefit of protecting the church. Church is important, isn't it? Church is essential, isn't it? Keeping the peace, keeping the health of the church is extremely important to the Lord. And Paul is saying, with that in mind, do not be afraid to admonish somebody who threatens that. Go to him with love. Admonish him compassionately. And bring him in. Help him serve Christ better. Strengthens the church. Strengthens him. Brings glory to God. Okay, admonishment. How does it happen? How does it happen? Or no, when does it happen? Simply put, admonishment will always be needed and can happen at any time. Done. As the redeemed living in an unredeemed body, we will always have a mind that's needing discipline, a mind that's needing correction, a mind that's needing teaching, and a mind that's needing correction. I don't know about you, but my flesh never stops. 
Anybody's flesh stop? Mine never stops. It might seem to take breaks at time for however long, but it never fully stops. And as men who will never arrive, we must always have room for maturing. Okay, but practically, how often? How often practically should this happen? Now, Paul answers this in a very beautiful way in Acts chapter 20, verse 31. It's a beautiful picture. He says this, Therefore, be on alert, remembering that night and day for a period of three years I did not cease to admonish each one of you with tears. Here Paul is speaking of his time in Ephesus. He recalls the three years that he was there, that he spent there. And the threat at that time was false teachers, which is a large and dangerous threat. Therefore, he calls them to be on alert. Now, this is not only be on alert when there's a threat. This is be on alert always because threats always exist. Remember, our flesh is always warring and Satan is always prowling. He recalls his time there, describing it as a time of admonition with each one of them, so personal, which lasted night and day. Paul was fervent to give as much admonishment, as much attention as needed to meet the needs. We must do the same. How much admonishment does this person need? Or how much attention does he need as a, as, as a response? Or how much interaction does this person need? As much as it takes. Be willing to give each other consistent admonishment in order to give the help needed for that individual situation. And that takes wisdom. It takes wisdom to understand it. It takes wisdom from your own personal experience to know, I know what this guy needs. Why? Because I know what I needed. I know it has helped me. It all works together. Now let's conclude with one last point. I'm going to go fast. Admonishment, the heart of it. The heart of admonishment. He says, beloved children, in 1 Corinthians 4.14, he says, as brothers, 2 Thessalonians 3.15, he says, with tears, we saw Acts 20.31. So with all this in mind, yes, let us be eager to admonish one another, but also let us accept this weighty responsibility of having a proper heart. Because an improper heart places one immediately into a category you don't want to be in. You're a hypocrite. <laughs> and you need your own discipline from God. And he ain't afraid. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 4.14, 4, I do not write these things to shame you, but to admonish you as my beloved children. Paul's admonishment came out of love, such as that as a father to a child. Protective, patient, selfless, eager. That's you to each other. Love each other. Don't be afraid. Protect each other. I'm not mad at you because you have sin. I got my own. I want to protect you. I'm going to be patient with you because that's helpful. I'm going to be selfless and eager. That's the love of a father. 2 Thessalonians 3.15 says this. Yet do not regard him as an enemy, but admonish him as a brother. When somebody is in need of correction, he's not your enemy. How extremely hypocritical for us to ever approach somebody who needs help or sin with that attitude. 
No, out of our humility and understanding the depths of our own sin, we see him as an equal. We are all the same. We are all sinners needing salvation and having been given it by Jesus Christ. We can equally celebrate that and we can equally help each other as brothers needing the same grace and mercy from Christ. Guys, I have it. I have that from Christ and you do too. We can celebrate that. This is amazing. You're my brothers. Let's fight this together. Acts 20, 31 says, I did not cease to admonish each one of you with tears. That means be a crybaby. No, it doesn't. But this is emotional. It's full of compassion. It's full of love and concern. It's deep. That's deep. If you're going to bring a man to tears, it's deep. That's deep love. What's your love like for others? Superficial or is it deep? It's also selfless. We give our time. We give our energies gladly like Paul did, knowing that we are contributing towards the maturing of a brother as he is conformed into the image of Christ and ultimately he gives glory to God with his life. I want God to be glorified. I want him to be glorified in your life and mine. Let's help each other do that. Let me close us with one final admonition. Men, if you are here today, if you have sat through our entire series and you have not repented to Jesus Christ, this warning, this final admonition out of my care is for you. You will stand before a holy judge. Our God is holy, our God is righteous, and he will judge accordingly. He's not afraid. That's what makes him righteous. That's what makes him just. And as a sinner who has broken a holy God's laws, you will be righteously punished. And guess what? You deserve that. You deserve that. Punishment is eternity in hell, in case you didn't know. It's serious. You don't want that. But through his everlasting and gracious mercy, the God Almighty in heaven has provided a way for sinners to be saved. He sent Jesus Christ, God himself in human flesh, to come down and pay the penalty for your sin. His, pay, his death paid the price for your death. If you believe, if you repent, today is the day. Tomorrow is not guaranteed. Believe in the finished work of Jesus Christ. Repent of your sins. Repent of those sins that damn you. Turn to a life of serving Christ, joining the fellowship of bringing God glory with our lives, and we're going to do it through some admonition. Amen? Let us, let us pray. Gracious Lord, we're so thankful for you, for your love for us. So undeserved is this love, Father, but so generously you have given it to us sinners. We are in awe of that gracious, merciful love. As every day when we sin, we are reminded of what we truly deserve, but immediately we are reminded of what we have in Jesus Christ. And from the bottom of our hearts, we say, thank you, thank you, thank you. Here's our life. We give it to you. You deserve it, Father. Be with these men. Let the depths of their love for you strengthen, grow deeper, let their desire to bring you glory grow. Father, you deserve it. 
Let all the truths that we have learned throughout this series go deep into our hearts. Dwell richly so that it affects every ounce of us, Lord, maturing us in wisdom that we might honor you and as a result, admonish each other in the way that you have designed, in a way that is glorifying to your name. Father, thank you. Be with our pastor, Brad, who is in Greece. Protect him in his travels. Bring him back to us so that next season we might have another wonderful opportunity to learn, grow, admonish, and bring you glory. Be with these men tonight. Get them home safely to their families. Let them sit on this truth. Grow in it again for your glory. We pray all of this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen.